Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Alan Hazlitt, a physiotherapist from the British Olympic Association's Intensive Rehab Unit. In this episode, we'll be discussing the residential intensive rehab that he is clinically a part of as a physio, and we'll also discuss the philosophy of evidence-based practice and art v. science in our sports medicine field. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Forceframe, Forstex, Human Track, and more recently, Airbands. Vald are an industry leader in the space of in-field athlete testing, monitoring, and training. And at the end of some of our episodes, we're going to start having some really quick tips and explanations of tests, concepts, and best practice from Vald. So stick around after today's conversation to catch today's edition. Without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Alan Hazlitt. On today's show, I have Alan Hazlitt, a physiotherapist from the British Olympic Association Intensive Rehabilitation Unit. It's a pleasure to get him on the show personally, as he's someone that I personally check in with quite regularly and seek advice or perspective from. And I met Alan a few years ago when I spent some time with him, James Moore, Fiona McPartland at the unit. And I can say he's an, he's an excellent clinician with um, what I really believe is a progressive and pragmatic approach to both performance and sports medicine, as I've, no, as I've no doubt that you'll hear shortly. So, Alan, welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast, mate. Um, thank you very much, Andy. Um, and thank you very much for the invite. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you over the, over the past few years and, and follow what you're doing in your professional journey and, and a big fan of the podcast. So, so very happy to be here. No, I mean, we have, we speak regularly, so it's about time we actually recorded one of the conversations we have. Yeah. Thankfully we haven't recorded any of them to be it. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't, yeah, I haven't done anything sneaky, but, um, yeah, today's the first, <laughs> the first official conversation we've recorded. Um, True. just to give the listeners that haven't come across you some context, if they haven't, can you share perhaps your background and maybe the professional route that's brought you to the current day? Uh, yeah. Um, in terms of, I, I probably, I tried to answer that question and splitting it in two. Um, academic journey for me, uh, started off by, by studying applied sports science at the university of Edinburgh. Um, before realizing that wasn't for me um, and moving down into England to Oxford and to Brooks to study um, a bachelor's of science of physiotherapy in the UK. Um, other qualifications in, in that time have been the National Strength and Conditioning Association Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist um, and the Exos Performance Specialist certifications. Um, I then finally did a, a master's in sports injury rehab at the University of Salford. Um, professionally, I, I was really lucky and really fortunate to, to get a job with Welsh Hockey reasonably early out from, from graduating, um, actually through my now brother-in-law who played. Um, that led to, to the experience I needed to, to finally move into professional football. Um, I started at Barnet, where I started in the academy and worked up to the first team um, as we were holding up the bottom of League Two for that season. Um, and then was got the got the move to Reading uh, Football Club, where where I spent um, a great um, just a great time for a few years. Um, before um, and then I was lucky enough to be asked to cover within Team GB's intensive rehabilitation unit by um, by James Moore, who you already mentioned. That began part time alongside doing a little bit of part time work for Great Britain's track and field team. Um, and eventually that led to being offered um, the job within the intensive rehabilitation unit full time, um, where I have been now for overall three and a half years, um, full time with uh, full time 18 months um, with a little sabbatical of four months last year when England rugby um, asked me to cover the Six Nations campaign with their with their women's squad, which was a which was an absolute delight. To be fair, it was a lot of fun. So that's that's journey so far. And just to kind of um, further create context, I mean, I, I've been to the the rehab unit and, and met you there, but can you explain what it is for um, for the listeners if they haven't come across it? Yeah, of course. the uh, The intensive rehabilitation unit, as the name suggests, um, is a rehab facility. It is jointly funded by the British Olympic Association and UK Sport, and it is run in partnership with the English Institute of Sport. 
It's based out of the High Performance Centre, um, which is a little standalone unit in Bisham Abbey. So for non-UK listeners, I suppose that's about 30 miles west of London. Uh, the rehab service is available to any Olympic athlete nominated for the British Olympic Association passport scheme. Uh, they are nominated by their sport, um, as well as you can also be UK world-class funded athlete or Paralympic athlete um, for both summer and winter sports. And that happens across all of the home nations. So that's England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, and we also have, have taken some professional sports in recent times, such as England rugby or the English cricket board. Um, and, and I suppose the, the overall, the simplest way to put it is what we do is we provide a block of intensive focused treatment um, that we tailor around an athlete to optimise their recovery from injury, really. And I mean, when I visited, I found it fascinating to see the... Um... I guess the setup and the way that you do things there and uh, from from every angle, from how many people you've got there working with the athlete at one time. And I think the the general setup for me was just fascinating to see because it's a little bit different to what we see to see elsewhere. Can you kind of, we'll, we'll dig into some different themes around how it runs, but can you kind of explain maybe the team and uh, if we start with that, just to kind of give give a picture of how you how you practice collectively there? Yeah, so, so the team consists of um, full-time and part-time staff. Um, I, sp- I suppose to give a little bit more context around that, we will take a maximum of three athletes per week. The athletes will come in for a residential block of time between Monday to Friday, so a five-day cycle. Um, and that can be used at any stage throughout the rehabilitation process. The staff involved with them are, there are four full-time members of staff, which is myself as a physiotherapist, uh, Fionn McPartland, who you mentioned, is strength and conditioning, um, Bex, uh, Rebecca Toon is physiologist. We're really, really fortunate to have a full-time physiologist. It makes a huge difference um, to our thinking within the unit, as I'm sure I'm sure you saw that day. Um, and we also have Bree, um, who keeps us all in check um, as administrator. And then throughout the week, we have part-time clinicians. So we have a clinic lead um, who comes in a couple of times per week. We have a doctor, we have a nutritionist, uh, a soft tissue therapist, and a psychologist who are all involved in in delivering input and also helping to plan and strategize for that athlete. And obviously, the lovely thing about being part of the English Institute of Sport is we have a wider network of clinicians that you can call on it at any time. And we, we see athletes from different sports every week um, with different injuries. Um, and by no means would I class myself an expert in any of them. Um, and, and we've got people throughout the network who, who specialize in, in certain areas. So it's always nice to be able to pick up the phone and chat with them and say, um, what do you think about this? What are my ideas on this? Am I on the right lines? What would you do differently? So um, to have that wider network is is lovely. I mean, for me, I, I was working in multi-sport when I came to spend time with you guys. And I think the thing that stood out based uh, following on what you just said is, you know, the ability for you guys, I guess, clinically to develop seemed incredible because you, like you said, you can pull upon the expertise of um, people that specialize in a sport from around the English Institute of Sport. And even if um, it's maybe like a team sport person, if they've got a certain type of injury, say a high speed running injury, you can you can turn to track and field or you can turn to whichever, um, you know, extreme physical quality uh, and the practitioner that works with that. What you know, you can turn to those people and borrow their thoughts. And I just thought, what an un- unbelievable place to not only work but also develop. Yeah, from from a personal point of view and a development point of view, um, I have never ever been in a setup quite like it. Um, it's been a it's been a pleasure. I've been very very fortunate to be the physio within that unit because my growth personally as as a clinician has been exponential since I started in there. Um, and that's with massive thanks to the the team that they they've built around the team that I've been lucky enough to to walk into the middle of. And how does it work in terms of um, you know you you get these different athletes from different sports that are predominantly Olympic based or Paralympic based? How does it work in terms of maybe the reasons they're coming to see you? Because obviously people will probably be questioning these athletes have their own uh, medical teams. What's the kind of referral process and maybe the referral reasons? for why you're seeing their athletes yeah that that comes um 
I suppose that comes down to the relationship we have with the NGBs. Um, we have a very close relationship with the national governing bodies um, and it is them that decide to send their athletes to us. Um, without them and that relationship, the unit would be a very quiet place to work in. Um, there's lots of different reasons. Um, some of those are, are time restraints or multidisciplinary team member restraints within that sport. Some sports don't have a full-time physiologist. Sometimes sports won't have um, a physiotherapist who's able to see all of their athletes all of the time. Um, so when you're going through a rehab process, it's, it's, um, it's sometimes that they just need additional hands um, or additional input from, a, from an intensive rehabilitation block. Um, sometimes we get athletes who have long-standing issues um, who just need a second opinion. Um, to run some diagnostics with that kind of intensive multidisciplinary approach, which we can provide. Um, by no means is the work that we do instead of the work that they get through the governing body or the institute system. Um, all we're trying to do is add some value to try to get them back into performance as fast as possible. Um, I suppose one of, the, one of the biggest aspects sometimes with athletes remaining in their sport is they always have responsibilities to that sport, even when they're injured. So when they come to us as, as a standalone unit, they're freed from all that responsibility so they can focus exclusively on their recovery and their rehab. Um, so, so sometimes that's a, a reason that they'll go as well. It, it's the good old saying, a change is as good as a rest. And, when I, when I was there, I think one of the things that really stood out to me was uh, the communication side of things. I mean, everybody will, in any environment, always credit how important communication is. And I think most people would like to think whatever their environment is, they're doing a good job of communication. But I think it stood out to me just how effective the communication was uh, at your facility. And I guess it, it also helps that maybe you've got less of the noise that exists in, say, a professional team sport. Um but can you kind of can you talk us through how the communication side of things work between I guess I guess you and the athlete, but also you and the uh, the team members that you work with to help the athlete? Yeah, um, we are incredibly lucky um, within the unit, um, as I'm sure you saw on on the day that you came in, that we are very very close friends, and that is friends inside and out of work certainly within the full-time members of staff. And that allows us to be able to have difficult conversations with each other as there is a huge amount of respect um, for one another um, and for each individual practitioner in their own profession. I know that I can challenge a person and I can be challenged knowing that it comes from a good place. Um, the only thing that matters to each individual within the team is that the athletes get back to their sport as fast as possible. Um, and secondary to that, that the sport is happy with that process. So the communication within ourselves as a team is actually very tight. Um, and that starts before the athletes arrive because the communication channels are open as soon as we hear that an athlete may be coming into the unit. And then that communication opens out to an open communication channel between the sport and the national governing body and us. Um, and that allows us... Um, and allows the sport and the national governing body to set their goals and expectations before the athlete comes into the unit. What that then allows us to do with the athlete when we sit down on a Monday morning is we can ask them what their goals and expectations are of potentially their week within the unit, potentially their long-term goals in returning to competition, whatever that goal may be. And we can then, with that communication, all of us, we can try and marry that together and we can then feed that back to our sport with, the athletes' goals and expectations, the national governing bodies' goals and expectations, and then our own goals and expectations from what we feel we can achieve within the unit. The unit, and then that collaborative approach always wins for me. What? Yeah, one of the things that came across to me when I was with you as well is how structured communication was, and I think when you're in a professional team or any sort of sporting organization, communication is strategized and people try to organize the schedule to have uh, meetings at certain times that focus on different things, but they do get distracted, those things that you set up. And I think for me, it was really, it was very obvious how well you guys adhere to a structure of how you communicate and when you communicate, everything seemed very purposeful. Yeah, we are, 
when you have somebody for such a short period of time, so so a five day window, every conversation you have is important, especially when you know that a governing body and an athlete is expecting you to produce something by the Friday. So it probably whittles down the amount of meaningless conversations and, and meetings that we have. Um, we always we always have a conversation with a purpose or we'll always have a conversation with a goal in mind. I think a lot of that comes down to the people that we have involved. Um, I'm very Northern Irish in my approach. Like, I don't like wasting time. I don't like sitting through a load of faff and meetings um, and listening to people talk for the sake of talking. I, I like I like doing. <laughs> I like being able to do stuff and make a difference straight away. And I know that Fiona and Bex are exactly the same. So from the full-time members of staff, um, everything we do is with a purpose and we like stuff to be done quickly. We're very impatient human beings as a group. Um, which I think adds to that because we won't say, oh, I'll just run and do this meeting for two hours. We'll say, no, that's wasting my time. I'd rather do this. And can we talk about how it functions for the, I guess, the process of the patient uh, in terms of patient comes in and, um, you know, what, what's the pathway for them? They, they get referred from their NGB. They walk through the doors. Can you talk through essentially what happens then? How does it, how does it get packaged for them? And, and I guess what's the approach? Yeah, um, I'll have to take it back. To answer that question fully, I'll have to take it back to before the athlete walks through the door because, as I, as I said earlier, the communication links open before that. Um, the process for you to admit into the intensive rehabilitation unit is you have a form to fill in. So the national governing body will fill in a form to say that they request an athlete to attend the unit. That will come in five days prior to admission. So that has to be in by the Wednesday prior to the week prior to them coming in. We sit down, so myself, IRU manager, clinic lead and administrator, sit down um, for a referral meeting that lunchtime. And we look through the, the plethora of referrals that we have in for that following week. Um, we then make a clinical based decision on which three are, are going to be the most um beneficial um or who is going which governing body has the biggest invested interest in their athlete for that following week we then choose those three athletes um, and we go back to the national governing body that afternoon and say we are accepting the athlete for the following week but we would like some more information can we have mri reports can we have blood results can we have whatever we would potentially need that would benefit the entire multidisciplinary team the athlete then gets confirmation and a confirmation package on the thursday to say that they are coming into the unit so the communication between the ngb the athlete and us has started the week prior to them coming into the unit what then happens is the athlete racks up to stay residential on site either on the sunday night or they show up on the monday morning um, and our monday is our assessment day um, we sit down um, as a multidisciplinary team. So myself, the doctor, um, the strength and conditioning coach and the physiologist, we sit down and we have a subject of assessment with the athlete. So all of us are in the room together. It's a pretty chilled out affair. Um, as I'm sure you know from dealing with me for a while, I like stuff pretty chilled out and casual. We just sit and have a chat. What's brought them here? Um, what journey they've been on if they've had surgery we discuss it a little bit then we we move into what we discussed earlier which is the goals and expectations of um, of what they expect from from this week or from this process that then leads into a musculoskeletal assessment which is led by myself um, which is just a, a standard I would say physiotherapy assessment musculoskeletal screen um, over the course of the day based on that um, they will see the individual practitioner separately. So they will then see the doc, the strength and conditioning coach for some diagnostics and some testing, the physiologist for a physiological test, and they will also see the nutritionist for a nutritional profile over the course of that day. With all of that information gained individually, um, we then meet um, at the end of that day. So four o'clock on the Monday, we sit down as a group um, and we then all of the information that we have gathered over that day, we then share with everybody. 
we then place that with on whiteboards. So every athlete has their own individual whiteboard within our office. Um, so all of the information goes up on a whiteboard. And out of that meeting, by the end of it, we need to have a working hypothesis of where we want to go with that athlete, what we want to test, what we want to assess, what are the objective markers that we're going to be looking for, um, and how does that fit into the presentation that we see in front of us. And we do that with each, so potentially with three athletes on that Monday. We then have a daily schedule, um, which we then try to plan out, always subject to change, but we try to plan out a weekly structure for that athlete so that when they come in on the Tuesday, we can explain what we found, what our plan is, why we're doing it, um, and then they've got a structure that they can follow for the week because we all know athletes love structure. And one of the biggest things they, they struggle with when they're injured, and this is across the board, is they struggle with not having structure. They miss their sport, they miss the structure of training, they struggle with not having it. So we try to structure their day. And we generally fill their day from 8.30 till 4 every day um, with some form of, of rehab or reconditioning work. Um, and then, yeah, that's that's how Monday pans out. And then when they come in on the Tuesday morning um, and every other morning subsequent to that, we have a monitoring form, so just a wellness questionnaire and, and, a, and delve in a little bit into how they're feeling, how motivated they are to train um, and we do that between 8.30 and 9. We then sit within that half hour as well and we say, actually, has have they presented how they thought they would present? Um, so if we've done a treatment or an intervention the day before and we expect them to be a little bit sore, a little bit domsy, are they or are they not? Therefore, has our intervention not been successful? Um, or the same with treatment, I would expect you to have increased and maintained range have they done that? Have they not done that? And that, that allows us to then discuss the daily schedule um, and potentially alter it to see what is best. And we do that on a on a daily basis. So so in essence, it's a it's a hypothesis review that we do um, each morning that the athlete is in. It's incredibly fair, isn't it? And I think I can imagine you get a lot of people across sport ask how they can replicate it, but that must be. Uh, based on the way that everything's constructed for you guys, it must be quite hard at times for certain teams to be able to copy it because um, everything you're doing is very focused around the the three athletes you have. Whereas I guess in a team, it's quite hard because there's there's just so many moving parts. Totally, totally. The, the, it's a very very fortunate scenario to be in to have three athletes to manage over over a week's period. And I know there'll be a lot of people listening to this podcast being so jealous of that. Um, who are currently running around trying to deal with 25, 30 athletes um, over Zoom at the minute. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's incredibly difficult to replicate. I would say there are certainly certain bits of it that are rep replicable um, within team sports. Um, but yeah, the, the actual number and the and the one-to-one -one attention and approach is, is very, very hard to replicate in, in those environments. But that's that's just the context of of the sport i think from for me talking to different people in different leagues and um and different sports organizations the only person that's really come on the show up till now who's got a i guess an environment that's similar is uh, i had heather linden on the director of physical therapy at ufc and yes. they it's different different in nature but they have a very similar approach where i think the the team meets up as a kind of round table on a daily basis to talk through who's coming in, who have they got, and, and how are they doing it, and, and what's the latest on each of the athletes they're working with. And one of the things that she mentioned, which definitely relates to what, what you guys do, is co-assessment. And she really kind of sung the praises or, or um, illustrated in her episode how important co-assessment has been for, for managing UFC fighters. And I know you guys um, uh, co-assess in your place. How, you know... In team sports, people will, will probably try to co-assess when they can, but it is hard at times to get everybody in the room to do the same job at the same time. Um, Very much so. How how do you kind of go go about co-assessing? Who who takes the lead, and how do you how do you do it effectively? I guess is what I want to know. I think personal opinion, but I think to have the subject of assessment all in one go. Um, saves time in the long run. So I think by having, um, for multiple reasons, I think from having all of the multidisciplinary team in the room together with the athlete, 
The story gets told once by the athlete. Nothing gets misinterpreted or there's no Chinese whispers between clinicians. Everybody has heard the same thing. They may have interpreted it slightly different, but that's a great conversation to have. But um, that conversation happens once. And I think one of the big things that athletes um, get annoyed about when they're rehabbing is the amount of times they have to tell the story. Because let's be honest, nobody likes to go through an injury um, and then to have to relive it with every practitioner that's involved must be incredibly tough. So I think to have that one hour set aside in the morning where we can have that discussion, I think it makes the athlete comfortable. The athlete knows that everybody has listened. And then I think further down the line, the conversations need to happen less. Um, so I think it saves time in the long run to have everybody involved straight from the off. I think it leads to a better approach. Um how do we decide who takes the lead? That's an interesting one. I, I think within the musculoskeletal assessment, it is always myself who will start. Um, I will do the assessment in, in my own way. Um, and my physio assessment is my physio assessment. I'm not saying it's right, it's wrong, it's better. It's the one that works for me. And that's the one on which I can get the information that I require. At the end of that assessment, I will always look to the rest of the room and say, does anybody want to know anything else? So for um, the physiologist, it might be, are we happy that they've got the range of movement here in order to sit on the bike to do that bike test? From a strength and conditioning point of view, they might say, is that joint clear so that I can maximally isometrically test that later? And you'll go, fine, let's check that. Um but that assessment done together, that musculoskeletal screen that we do together just allows um, the platform and the foundations for then the testing that they will do individually later on. So I think we're all comfortable and we all trust each other. I think that's the biggest thing. It comes back to what we were chatting about earlier. We trust each other in our assessment skills. If I assess something, um, I may get questioned as to what I found and what I assess, but they trust that I have assessed it to the best of my ability. Um, and the same with every other individual practitioner. So that mutual respect makes for um, a very easy and open um, testing and, and screening process. And for the athletes, it must be incredibly reassuring because they can see the level of detail and, and I guess they can see just the clarity and the, the smoothness of the operation in terms of how you guys communicate and how you all interact. They must feel, uh, A, heard cause, and and. And B, like you said, they don't have to repeat this story. But I think, importantly, they they can just see how well looked after they are when you all cooperate in that way. I hope so. <laughs> and uh, that's the only thing I suppose I could say on that. I, I really hope. I really hope so. I think the the other thing that really helps from us is because we do get on so well as a group. Um, athletes tend to feel very comfortable um, when, when they walk in. Um, and, and that makes for more open and honest conversations. Um. And to kind of move into, I guess, to, to create some context for people in, um, in, in team sport and maybe compare and contrast as a setting, how does the, the management of, say, an athlete differ at, at your place to, say, in a professional sports setup? And we've touched upon certain things that people will pull that answer out of already, but what are the kind of big differences in terms of how you're able to manage them that you see? Yeah, I mean, I, I can only speak from my own experience um, from having done both, from having been lucky to work within professional sports setups and within the intensive rehab unit. And I suppose if this lockdown period has taught me anything, it's that there's a lot of clever people in the world um, and there's a lot of cracking ideas that are all correct and they're in their own way. Um, everybody has a place and a system that works for them. Um, personally, um, my actual objective assessment stays relatively the same. From a physio point of view, um, I follow my own structure um, and it doesn't change too much regardless of whether I'm working within the unit or I'm working within a sport. Um, it's a question I had asked myself when I was in the IRU um, and I was working within the unit and I thought, well, let's relate to if or when I go back into team sports and I had the chance to do that with, with England Rugby and um, with the women's 15 set up last year. And I was really pleased that it did. <laughs> From a personal point of view, it, it was transferable. 
the biggest difference is the context. Um, within team sports, there's always a game around the corner. Um, as we mentioned earlier, you, you have to manage 20 to 30 athletes. For the NFL guys who may be listening to that, obviously the numbers are much more than that. Um, we have a maximum of three athletes per week. Again, I can hear people laughing listening to the podcast. Um, as mentioned, I think having the subject of all in one go is, is useful um, and it saves time in the long run. Um, and I think having a place for the system and that system being the BOA or the English Institute of Sport or UK Sport that's not based within the system is hugely important. Um, and I think the biggest difference between where we are and, and professional sport is, is the mindset changes. As mentioned earlier, you're freed from all your responsibilities so you can then focus exclusively on the recovery. Um, athletes who stay with, within their sport are getting A-grade first-class care, 100%. They are receiving it. Um, but sometimes they struggle to fully embrace the rehab because they're always around their sport. They're always around their teammates. Um, so we have the joy of people coming in and fully engaging um, with their rehab and their reconditioning process. They can park everything else and they can say, this is a time for me to get better. And the context of that is probably the biggest difference I see between working in a professional sports environment and working within the, the unit itself. Um, and I think that's why these kind of separate rehab facilities have got great value. Um, I know that's going to be a biased opinion because I work in one of them. But I, I do think they get great value. And I know there's some very, very popular private ones throughout the world um, that are being accessed with, with professional sports. And I think, like you said, like when you were able to go back into sport, I can imagine it must be helpful because if you've maybe got a, f a few, maybe fewer constraints and you've got the luxury of being able to really... Um, leave no stone unturned in terms of how you manage care when you're then in a team environment where it's a bit more chaotic and you haven't got um, the same access and time with patients you can work backwards from okay what would you do in a more perfect scenario and then whilst you might not be able to do all of those things always at least it gives you a reference point for what you would like to do and then you can problem solve in the moment to identify how you work around the stuff you haven't got but it gives you a reference point of where you want the care to be, which I think is really important. I think so. I, I base a lot of my thinking process on stoicism and the stoics. Um, and I know we've had these conversations before. Um, for me, that, that line of, of thinking and, and to always be objective, um, to ignore outside opinion in the start of the process, to formulate your own ideas, to then go and have conversations. But one of the biggest things... Um, of that kind of stoic philosophy is to place things in perspective, which is different between the timing of the injury, the timing of the season, how many athletes you've got to look after, um, but also to revert to the present moment and to focus on what can be controlled. So exactly as you say there, this is how it would work in a perfect world. But actually, in to put things into perspective of what we're trying to achieve here, this is as perfect as we can get it. Um, but as long as that is thought about and planned for, I think that's perfect. And I think from a clinical standpoint for physios listening, it's interesting because um, I think a lot of the body of evidence that we rely on, if we talk about um, best practice for a particular injury at any moment in time, it's typically framed around um, what is realistic in a, in a normal physio setting or traditional setting and layout of an appointment. And I think... A, you've got a multidisciplinary team that allows you to um, pull influence and pull information and uh, interventions that are more wide than, say, purely a physiotherapy um, best practice would sort of framework would be. But yeah. I think you, it, it appeared to me when I was with you guys for the day that actually the things that you consider are a lot more broad um, than maybe would normally fit into uh, an athlete's care consideration, um, be that in pro sport or, or in a t on a regular clinic. I, I think that's a lovely statement to hear. I, I, I probably can't comment on that in terms of that. that's just what, what goes on within the unit. I, as, as I said earlier, I think we are incredibly lucky um, within the unit to have staff who are open and honest and collaborative and also think wider than their own 
profession, um, which just leads us into a, a lovely place to to be and to work from. Yeah, and I think it's. Uh, I mean, I think it's hard, isn't it? Because people will always point the finger and uh, say that this is best practice. Uh, maybe what you're doing doesn't feed into that, but actually, you can soundly reason it in in your answer or defense of that uh, argument if such an argument was ever <laughs> presented to you i think the stuff that you pull into it is scientifically valid and plausible if even if it hasn't always been mentioned in um in one paper or one uh one way of doing things yeah totally i it, the reasoning process for me comes back to understanding first principles um I suppose a limitation of clinicians tunneling their vision into one way of thinking about formal research. So does X directly cause Y or does A equal B is a really oversimplistic mindset of singular causation. Um, Yet we acknowledge that the body um, causation and presentation of an injury is a multi-systemic and complex phenomenon. Um, So it's, um, so that's a slightly probably flawed funnel to look at so if you cannot prove it through the limited lens of formal research it hasn't got a place but it should be borne in mind that no singular piece of research has ever had the full answer to an injury um we had a conversation a few months ago andy where you said to me in dealing with the human body a influences c but often the research stops at b (laughs) and i thought that was one of the best um phrases that I'd heard and to sum up probably my own um way of thinking of that and just as you said there that's not to say that research isn't hugely important but you cannot use it as a equals b you must use it to inform your practice and not to change it so for us we will always go back to first principles anatomy and physiology has not changed for millennia but research moves on it changes and it's fantastic and some of the research that's been able to produce now is is mind-blowing i sit and read research articles i read a few yesterday and i was like this is great stuff but i feel that i'm now at a stage of my career when i can take the little bits of it and go actually that fits in with my framework and i can see how from an anatomy and a physiology point of view that fits and that makes sense that then guides and helps to to guide my practice not to change it so i like the old um Occam's razor I don't know if you've ever heard of Occam's razor. So um, it's an old philosophical term that, that states that suppose you have two or more explanations um, for the occurrence of what you see in front of you. Occam's razor states that the one that requires the smallest number of assumptions is usually correct. And I think that's, that's where I tune myself as a clinician. Um, Sometimes you have to make an assumption, but if I have to make three assumptions to get to that hypothesis, but I only have to make one assumption to get there based on the fundamentals of anatomy, physiology, and what the research has told me, I'll use that one because that's definitely the one to go down. If that hypothesis is incorrect or it's not valid, then we can move down other routes. But again, it's all about just making the least number of assumptions based on the information that you have in front of you. I think we have to think about the timeframes as well, don't we? Because we'll uh, maybe try things in clinic and then it might work or it might not work, but it might then probe us to do research. Or like we said, like research answers very small questions at a time, does A equals B? And I think inevitably it's going to take years for a formal um, literature process to be able to add up all of those smaller chunks and, and questions and answers to then have enough power and enough of the answers succinctly layered together to be able to say, yeah, A does cause C, or um, yeah, now we fully understand it. It, it just takes years, and it takes so many papers to um, to prove the complexity of even just one simple thing that we're trying to do. Um, so yeah. I think, like, uh, you know, I definitely am biased, but I definitely gravitate to how you think and how and how, this, how the, the IIU works in terms of um, piecing together um, islands of research with good reason and good logic to then sort of uh, make a clearer narrative, I guess, of what you're doing and why, where maybe the research is going to take a long time to get to that same place. I mean, yes, there's maybe a bit of a, maybe there's a risk in doing it, maybe there's not, in terms of whether it pans out the way the science is going to say, but 
if you're safe, it's well reasoned and it's based on experience and literature. You know, I think it's fair game. Yeah, and I think once you have that, um, once you have that reasoning process, and you have that hypothesis that is based on very few assumptions, and um, based on, and that's not just my opinion as to what's not assumptions. That's the entire MDT, and sometimes the collective knowledge of other people within the system. When you have that knowledge and you have that clarity, um, the S and C coach Fionn always says clarity drives intent. So it means that we are confident that we can go after that and make a change. So therefore, as opposed to just giving generic programs to see, you can be much more direct with how you program for an athlete. Um, and also the, the lucky thing within the unit is we see the athlete all day, every day. If you do something and they don't respond well to it, you know within a minute. You know really quickly and you go, okay, don't do that. There's always eyes on them. They're always there. So, so, it's, um, so yeah, it's a good environment. I think this is a nice time to segue to uh, the article that you've just published on um, Art v Science, um, uh, which, which um, for the listeners, I'll, I'll uh, put a link in the show notes so that people can easily find it and read it for themselves after this, after this, epi- after this episode if they want to. Um, can you talk us through, the, I guess, the thought process and um, where that article came from, I guess? Yeah. The article is is something that I've been sitting on for for quite a few months. It it, it came, it probably came out of frustration um, from from a few conversations and a few um, experiences where where I just needed to to put some stuff down on paper to get it out of my head. Um, and and my my two passions when I was at school um, was art and was science. Um, I studied art, I studied technology and design, um, and I did biology, chemistry, and physics. Um, and for me, I never tried to separate both. Um, they were always intertwined, and and that hasn't changed. The more I've I've kind of gone down a scientific path with, um, with physio, um, I've always really loved um, art and that kind of artistic nature of the human body. Um, so that's kind of where it where it came from, um, and it's probably just me brain farting onto a page. Really, people will read it and they'll they'll take from it what what they want. But it wasn't something I was planning planning on putting out there. Lockdown does crazy things to people. I thought I'll put it out there and see what happens. I'll step outside my comfort zone, and uh, and actually, it's been really really well received um, with some just lovely comments from some great people who I massively admire and respect. So it's been a, it's been a good thing to do. What was the, I mean, this might be hard to do in a, in a podcast about people uh, reading it, but what was the kind of crux of the, of the article? What were like the, what's the main oh, points, I guess, if you were to you, sum it up to, you, to listeners? You, you could be in for a long answer here, folks. <laughs> um, for me, the journey that you go on as a, as a clinician is you do a bachelor of science. You then, potentially do a master's of science the next step on the journey is a phd which is a doctorate of philosophy not a doctorate of science um, for me philosophy is an art form much more than it is a science um, and that led me to think well we cannot separate them they, they are connected um, sports medicine physiotherapy strength and conditioning physiology nutrition um the list goes on and on as to the number of professionals involved now in in the world of elite sport and the world that we all live in um we are all scientists but my question is are we losing the art form which is involved in dealing with the ever-changing human body uh, science is what we have learned about how to keep from fooling ourselves so the best people in the profession in my opinion, to have a way of working which goes far beyond a research article or a textbook. They have a true, deep and meaningful connection to the art form, which is the human body. Um, and the connection to the athlete is the number one priority because ultimately no one knows the athlete better than themselves. Um, you can probably tell I'm a bit of a science geek, but one of the oldest scientific organizations is based in London and um, it's called the Royal Society and it has an old Latin motto which translates as take no one's word for it which I really really like um, athletes are all different at different stages of their career and within different sports the research moves on as as we've already discussed 
but we cannot just accept that what works for one will work for another. So for me, if a research paper tells me that this works well for a certain group or a cohort, it doesn't mean that I have to or I should accept it for my own athletes. Um, we all know dealing with elite athletes is a conundrum of head scratching moments on a regular basis. Um, and more than likely, the athlete that you have in front of you is the outlier from the research paper you've read. They're going to be some form of physiological abnormality. Can I say that? I've said it now. Yeah, um, your body and the human body of the person in front of you is judge, jury and executioner. You can argue all you want, but if that body doesn't agree with you, you're wrong. Whatever bias you bring to the table, um, the, that body is going to let you know. Um, so you have to make sure that your methods and your philosophies and your toolbox allows that body to manifest itself in whatever way it needs to because that is going to lead you to where the truth lies. Um, so for me, it's about always understanding what you're trying to do, um, even if it doesn't go positively. Listen, I make people worse on a regular basis, right? And that's, that's, not, that's not a lie. That's the truth. But I don't worry about that because everything I have done is reasoned through a, a reasoning process where I go, if that has made that worse, what have I done from an anatomy and physiological point of view to that person? And why would that have made them worse? That sound knowledge of functional anatomy and physiology will, will kind of lead you to where the truth lies, regardless of whether it gets better or worse. Um, so that's probably the article in it in a nutshell if that made any sense yeah i think like um a couple of thoughts have sprung to mind is like you know we've had so many webinars um pop up because there's been downtime in the industry in sport recently and i think the thing i find interesting and i had uh jas from altis say this on the podcast not long ago where he said you know we've got all this information on say a hamstring injury we know more about the architecture. We know more about the mechanisms. We know more about everything and all the minutiae of detail, but we're not always any better at actually managing them. And I think, you know, obviously we've got to have a balance between scientific understanding and clarity and and the art form of our methods. But I think the thing that stood out to me recently is, you know, when we listen to all these webinars, we, we, we make notes and we listen to the information and it informs us. But the bit that really makes us sit up is actually the art part is, well, how did this? Uh, how did this person in their environment? How did they rehab the injury? How did they? How did they tackle it from an approach standpoint? I think you have to have that information because it underpins what we do and why. But actually, I think sometimes we don't put enough credibility into the art side of it when actually we do naturally prick up on webinars when it's discussed. I think you're. I think you're exactly right in that point. It, it is the crux of it is how did that person get better and what did that clinician do to make that situation a positive one for that athlete and that is a mix of everything you have to know the anatomy you have to know the science you have to know the research but you also have to know that athlete and you have to know the the task and the task demands and you also have to know the context around the club and everything or what goes in to making that athlete tick regardless of what way you look at it if you look at it more from a science point of view if you look at it more from an art form you have to look at it from both um the athlete's the number one priority always without without the athletes we don't have jobs is what i will always say um they are the number one priority um and and whatever method you have to use in order to get that person back that's the stuff that people want to hear about and I have to thank you for writing that article because I, I mean I really enjoyed reading it and it was something that uh, I think put thoughts together that were in my head but I hadn't quite uh, eloquently joined them together and I think I read that article and it really it it drew, it drew my attention to some interesting things like you said like Oakham's razor and and some different philosophies but it it really helped me piece together my own thoughts so um, I definitely encourage the listeners to uh, to give it a read and yeah like I said it'll be in the show notes for them to for them to find it um, yeah, thank you very much Andy appreciate that where's the best place for people to follow you at the moment um I mean I'm on all the standard social media bits and pieces so so Twitter and and Instagram um and I I'm trying certainly through this isolation period to to be a little bit more professional within those and um, so people are are 
more than happy. Twitter is Alan Hazlett, H-A-Z-L-E-T-T. Um, Instagram is the same. Um, probably the easiest way to contact or, or if anybody's got any questions or would like to connect in, in any way, I'm, I'm very open and it's always lovely to hear how other people um, do stuff. LinkedIn is um, is as easy a way to contact as, as any, really. And have you got any kind of projects or uh, presentations that you're giving in the pipeline? Have you got anything you're... I know you did one recently for uh, ACP SEM, but have you got anything else in the pipeline? Um, not uh, not currently. I'm, I'm Well, I'm, I'm writing a follow-up piece um, and a bit of a framework for rehab in a sports setting, um, which is kind of nearing a conclusion at the minute, which again is just another few pages of waffle from me with a, a little bit of a diagram this time as opposed to all writing. Um, and like you say, I presented the ACPSM yesterday, which has been fun. Um, I normally try to keep a low profile, um, but I decided through this isolation period that I wanted to step outside my comfort zone. Um, hence why I agreed to chat with you on record. Um, <laughs> so I honestly, I don't know what's next, but um, it'll be something I'm not comfortable with um, and I will keep you posted. We will promote it as well, just so that people can watch that. Um, well, mate, it's always great to chat to you, but thanks so much for coming on the show and, and kind of giving people an insight as to what you do and and how you do it, importantly. It has, uh, it's been a pleasure. I've, I always enjoy our chats, Andy, um, even if they're recorded. So um, I really appreciate it. And, um, and yeah, it's been great. Thank you for everybody for listening as well. I appreciate that too. Perfect. Cheers, mate. Big thank you again to Alan for coming on today's show and just being so transparent and genuine whilst fielding my line of questions throughout the chat. I also owe Alan a personal thank you for being someone who I can regularly pick up the phone and chat with as a mate, but also to bounce ideas off and very safely discuss my thought processes with and to borrow his insights or perspective on. Next week, I'll be chatting to Bradley Skeynes, a British performance coach and physiotherapist working in Formula One with Red Bull Racing, and he's a consultant to British gymnastics as well. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vild Performance. For today's Vild concept explained, we're going to talk about dynamic strength index. So dynamic strength index, or DSI, is a concept where you aim to measure the difference between an athlete's maximal strength capacity and their explosive strength capacity. A nice example would be measuring or using an isometric mid-thigh pull and a counter-movement jump. So the calculation is performed by dividing the peak force output in the explosive test, in this case the counter-movement jump, by the peak force output in the maximal strength test, so the isometric mid-thigh pull in this instance. A higher score would indicate that the athlete is more capable of utilising their force potential during a ballistic exercise. But in contrast, the lower an athlete's DSI score is, potentially the less capable they are of utilising that force potential during ballistic exercises. That's a lightning-fast explanation of Dynamic Strength Index from Vild Performance, which of course their Forstex product and software is perfectly designed to support. Thanks again for tuning in to the Informed Performance podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.